Hi, I'm Carly Grossman, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist, and I'm excited to talk about Tazria and disability justice. Hey, Kate. Hey, Amanda. You remember how last week we had this really troubling text that we had to explore and go through, and we had some help, but it was still a little bit of an upsetting text? Uh, yeah. I very much remember that. It was pretty upsetting. Guess what? What? Troubling text take number two this week. Are you excited? Ugh, I've never been more excited to be really upset. I mean, hear me out. Yeah, I understand that this one is a little bit difficult to get through, right? Like, we're talking about some health issues, we're talking about some troubling ways of dealing with, I don't know, people who might be on the periphery. But we're looking at it in kind of a new and cool different way. We're looking at it through disability justice lens. And I'm actually really excited to learn more. How about you? I'm stoked. Let's go. I know that we spoke about Shemini being somewhat of a complicated chapter in Leviticus. And look, I'm not going to lie. We might be, for the next couple of episodes, continuing the trend of troubling texts. But I'm really excited to look at Tazria through a new lens. A lot of the time, this particular portion gets skipped over for maybe some better stories. But hear us out. You're not going to want to miss this particular Parsha on this exceptional episode. And to help us understand it just a little bit better, we've got two awesome people joining us tonight. Carly Grossman, she, her, is a disabled activist, writer, and organizer with a background in disability and public benefits law. She's a passionate student of the disability justice movement, and much of her work in the past year has focused on helping her own Jewish community in Philadelphia Center Disability Justice as it navigates the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. That is real. In addition to her own lived experience, Carly brings to her work the unique perspective of years working as a legal aid attorney specializing in disability and public benefits law. Carly identifies as a queer, multiply disabled, white Jewish cis woman, and she lives on unceded Lene Lenape land near Philadelphia. We're also super stoked to bring on third year rabbinical student Emily Dana to the show. Welcome, Carly. Welcome, Emily. We're so, so thrilled to welcome you to Drinking and Drashing Tour with a Twist. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's nice to be here. It is wonderful to have you here. And of course, tackling the tough portions with me is my favorite co-host and distilled Torah summary creator, Gabriel Snyder. What's going on, Gabe? Shalom. And a hearty shalom to you. And of course, we wouldn't be a complete crew without our favorite executive producer. How's it going, Edon Waldman? Recently married? It's going great. Good to be here with everybody. We are so thrilled to have you back, and we are so thrilled to continue the conversation and the adventure in podcasting together with all of you.
Welcome to Parashat Tazria. God is speaking to Moses to talk about ritual impurity. What makes someone impure? Well, giving birth is one thing. If the baby is a boy, the birth causes seven days of impurity and then 33 additional days of a different kind of impurity, as opposed to the birth of a girl, which gets two weeks followed by 36 days. After either amount of time, the impurity is lifted when a lamb is given to the priests as a burnt offering and a pigeon or turtle dove as a guilt offering. The priests performs those sacrifices, and if you can't afford a lamb, a couple of pigeons will do. Once those sacrifices are done, congrats, you're pure again. What else can make you impure? Skin diseases. Swelling, rashes, discoloration, scaly afflictions all need to be reported to the priests. Aaron is basically Dr. Fauci. I made that joke last year, but I decided to keep it. The priest checks the patient for leprosy, which automatically makes a person impure. If the leprosy is in the early stages, however, they need to quarantine for seven days, at which point they get checked again. If the infection hasn't changed, the person quarantines another week. This repeats until the infection fades, at which point they can be declared pure, but they need to report it to the priest if it comes back. This repeats a few times in basically the same form for various different types of leprous infections. Also, just so you know, male pattern baldness doesn't make you impure. Take that, hairline! Back to leprosy for a minute. If a person has leprosy, they rent their garments, they don't wear hats, and they mask up. No, seriously. It says al safam yate, which literally means they shall cover the upper lip or mustache. Again, Aaron is Fauci. The leper is required to tell everyone around them that they are impure and should be avoided. They are to live outside of the camp until the infection clears. I don't know about you, but this all feels very familiar to me. Also, cloth that has been touched by leaking infections needs to be isolated for seven days and then either burned or washed, depending on if the infection spreads on the cloth. Gross. And that's Parashat Tazria. Nice, Gabe. That Parsha is really hard to talk about, and you summarized it actually concisely. Absolutely. Clearer than a CDC briefing. It would be hard to be less clear than a CDC briefing, but I still appreciate what I'm pretty sure is a compliment. So thank you. Thank you for that. Not to in any way disparage our hero, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and all of the wonderful people who work at the CDC to keep us all healthy and safe. Idan, what did you think of that distilled Parsha summary? I didn't like to hear about the leaking wounds that grossed me out a ton. Not great. Yeah, no, there's a lot going on in this Torah portion. And, you know, we've already been talking in Leviticus a lot about animal body parts and blood and sacrifices and slaughtering things and putting blood in weird places. And now we just get, you know, more bodily fluids, which is just great. There's barely anything in this Parsha that's not gross. I can mostly agree with that. I think there's a couple of things. Maybe we'll find some in our discussion coming up right now. Carly, I am really thrilled to have you on the show and to get to look at Tazria through kind of a different lens than I've ever understood it. But I know that I'm new to this idea, and so would you mind talking to us about what exactly is the disability justice movement? Absolutely, and I'm glad that you asked because it's such a commonly thrown around kind of phrase in a lot of ways, I think, where you used to see, you know, disability rights in a lot of places. Now they're just kind of substituting the word rights with the word justice without kind of understanding where that comes from. And the disability justice movement really did come out of kind of 
insufficiencies really in the disability rights and disability studies movements before it, which is not to say that those movements did not make incredible gains for disabled people, like you know the Americans with Disabilities Act and things like that, which are hugely important. But a lot of, for example, disabled people of color, queer people, trans people, immigrants who were disabled really felt like those movements did not do enough to address the ways that disability interacts with other intersecting identities, did not take into account intersectionality, did not center the people who were marginalized the most and therefore were affected the most by the kinds of things that they felt the movement needed to be fighting for. And disability justice really like in the, I think, mid-aughts, I guess, came together out of queer women and femmes of color who are disabled, kind of recognizing, especially in progressive and radical groups, that they really needed to create a movement to make them more accessible, to make them address ableism within their groups, and really center the most marginalized, most affected people within those groups. That, in a kind of large nutshell, is (laughs) what disability justice is. So clearly that's an incredible pursuit, right? That, like, you're aiming to not only center people who are on the sidelines, but you're aiming to center people who are on the sidelines of an already marginalized group. So I love that idea. I'm wondering, A, how you personally and how your work fits into that larger movement, but also where that comes from for you. That is to say, what are the values? What are the ideas that inspire your work? Yeah, I think your first point about it being kind of a really heavy undertaking (laughs) and the challenges kind of inherent in trying to center the most marginalized of the marginalized. (laughs) My experience, and I think for a lot of disabled people, and as we learn, you know, in Tazria, it's not a new thing that a lot of disabled people in our modern society face a lot of isolation, you know, particularly people who are disabled and can't work. You know, our society is not made to be accessible and inclusive for disabled people. And the things that isolate disabled people from the rest of society, from, you know, society that is made for non-disabled people, also isolate disabled people from each other. And that is a huge added challenge in having people organize together and having people, you know, advocate for each other and even having people know about each other. And so for me, I actually, well, I've had chronic illness and stuff my whole life. I became disabled and stopped working several years ago. I had already been disabled and kind of out of the labor market for several years before I ever heard of or was exposed to any of these ideas. And I carry a lot of privilege as, you know, a cis white woman with a lot of education and experience even in disability law, 
And it wasn't actually until the pandemic and quarantine, really, during actually the protests of the summer of 2020, I was feeling like I wanted to get involved, but being immune compromised, that was really not an option for me. And I was looking for ways to get involved. And like I referred to, the disability justice movement kind of has grown out of, you know, these progressive spaces being less than accessible. And it was really hard for me to find, you know, ways to get involved. And that was something that I had experienced over and over again in my years, you know, as a disabled person. But this time, now that there was a lot of increased online access and people were reaching each other in these new ways a lot more, as I explored more, I found a lot more disabled people interacting with each other and sharing, you know, these books and these articles and holding workshops on disability justice. And it was really just exploding. And so that is really how I came to it. So, you know, I think I'm sure for a lot of your listeners, these are new concepts. They're relatively new concepts to the world. And for me, you know, they're relatively new as well. And so I want to stress that a lot of what is so important in disability justice is each individual's lived experience. I also, exactly as you were saying that, was thinking it's about our lived experience. And I would also say, like, as a fellow disabled person who also didn't know a ton of disabled people before the pandemic, I think that everything going online and therefore the able-bodied people of our world going online, both in and out of the Jewish space, because I work in both of those spaces, really allowed disabled people who needed to find each other to find one another. It absolutely did. That has been my experience as well. And I think there's also a lot of fear in the disabled community as we go forward in this kind of nebulous space with a lot of people, you know, wishfully thinking that the pandemic is over, that, and, you know, all of this emphasis on quote unquote going back to normal that we're going to get left behind again and we'll be once again outside the camp. So with that, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you see this Torah portion connecting. That was a really great segue. You just like teed that up for us. But yeah, this conversation about being outside of the camp, being on either literally or figuratively the margins of society, and also this idea of those people who are pushed outside of the camp being perceived as, in some way, a danger to society. I'm curious as to how you see the relation between this Torah portion and your work. Thank you. As a general matter, I see a lot of overlap between disability justice and Jewish tradition. Disability justice really centers on you know, the inherent value of each individual and that everybody has something to contribute. You know, Jewish tradition, we say, you know, each individual is made in the image of God and, you know, that we in our infinite variety, you know, are evidence of the infinite faces of God. And, you know, we all have our Torah to share. Our communities are not whole without all of us. Sadly, (laughs) I do not see those values reflected in Tazria. 
it does make me think of some principles that are spoken about in disability justice circles. And I'll just quickly tell you what that is, which is looking at disability through either a medical model or a social model. A medical model looks at disability and the limitations that people have as the sort of fault or problem of the individual and the solution to those problems are to treat or cure the individual. With the social model, we look more at societal barriers and making society more accessible. So disability justice leans towards the social model. Tazria falls fully in the medical model. The sick person has to alert the community to their impurity or their uncleanliness, depending on your translation. They get exiled to the literal margins of the camp. It's hard, at least it is for me, not to read blaming and shaming into this part, that we're not just exiling people because they are potentially, you know, infectious or contagious. We're not just exiling them because of the affliction that they have, but we're also making certain assumptions about the people who have this affliction in the process. And, you know, it's from the choice of language, people are impure or unclean. They're not ill or in need of care. It signals not just othering, but almost ostracizing. They say, being clean, he shall dwell apart. It's not, oh, we're so sorry you're sick. You know, we'll give you this space to rest and get better and we'll come visit you and we'll care for you and take care, you know, we'll make sure you're okay. And, you know, because you're ill, this is where you'll stay and we care about you so much. It's more like, this is your fault. And if we're not going to explicitly say it's your fault, it's definitely your problem. And I think that we see that, you know, still all the time. People make assumptions about other people based on their health status all the time. And yeah, so I just see that as kind of grounding here in our text for making kind of value judgments about people based on their health. And that doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense, especially considering Tazria is rough, right? You know, in Leviticus 13, 46, and I know you cited this before, that the person who is struggling, like, not only is struggling, but they have to go out and be like, hey, right? Like, unclean, unclean, right? Tame, tame. And in some ways, that makes them out their disability status, which is not necessarily something that everyone always wants to do, right? Like, it is a required disclosure, that I think can be really uncomfortable because with that required disclosure comes, I would imagine, some real discomfort, you know? And what I find nowadays are some really difficult situations that even innocently put people into that forced disclosure. Let's say that you have a rule that, like, you're not allowed to use computers in your classroom, but the only way someone can take notes is to use a computer in the classroom because, you know, it hurts to hold the pen for a long time. If that person is using a computer, like, that automatically discloses their disability. And I feel like there must be a way that we could do better. I think that there's a couple things here. One thing is, and I completely agree with your insight there, one thing that I think is really unwise about depending on 
a sick person to kind of out themselves as, you know, contagious in, you know, like a pandemic or even just, you know, when there's just something going around, it's pretty bad public health policy because people know what they're going to have to do if, you know, nobody wants to be exiled. <laughs> nobody wants to have to leave their family, not get to have any visitors, potentially be out there for the rest of your life. You don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, it's not very good public health from like a basic standpoint. And it's still not. We still do it. <laughs> and it's still not good public health. The other thing that I think, like what you were talking about with people taking notes differently or people getting their needs met differently, I think we also need to start helping people understand that disability is not a bad word and that being disabled and having access needs or, you know, doing things differently is not a defect. It's just a difference, like just like other identities that you might carry. And so if that were truly integrated into the way that we see other people, being in a classroom where people are taking notes differently or, you know, having whatever kinds of quote unquote accommodations that they need in order to be in that learning community, that should be celebrated so that all of those people, all of those students can be there together in their classroom, you know, learning together. Not everybody learns the same way, but they can all be there together learning together. I think that's part of how we expand our camps is not just by kind of allowing for the like weird kid who's kind of extra, who's kind of like a pain because they have extra needs, <laughs> you know, fine, you can have this computer, but we're all gonna, you know, look at you weird and like think, all right, we're doing it because it's what we have to do. Um, but really kind of integrating those principles into the way that we are in relationship with each other, which unfortunately takes a lot of kind of individual work, but hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of smiling and nodding and clapping and snapping from Emily's screen on Zoom. And I know that our listeners can't see that. Amanda is also doing that. But I specifically mentioned Emily because we're super excited to turn the conversation over to her. But before we do that, I do have one more question for you. And that is, what do you want people to walk away with after hearing this conversation? Uh, what's your one call to action, your one piece of wisdom, your one, you know, slogan? Thank you for that question. And I think what I'd like to end with or point out is that expanding our camps does not just benefit disabled people or other marginalized people that we grow to include. It benefits our entire communities. We're more whole when we include more of us from different backgrounds and experiences. We all bring our own Torah with our own contributions. And without that, our communities are less complete. And I think we're at a point in the pandemic right now where we're faced with some really serious choices, just like our ancestors were forced with choices when they were creating their communities and deciding 
who they wanted to be included in their camps and who was going to be left on the margins. And we have to be really careful. Do we want to, quote unquote, go back to normal, meaning make our camps more restrictive, smaller, with more people pushed to the margins? Or do we want to learn from our experiences and continue to expand the camp beyond where we are now? So one of the benefits that people don't necessarily know about going to school at HCC is sometimes you have the luck and the privilege of getting to do what's called a cross-campus class. Now, that might sound weird, right? Like, here's the deal. We're in COVID. We're not supposed to be, like, intermingling with other people. And what? We're doing classes with people all over the country? Well, you see, that was the beauty of Zoom school during the pandemic. And I actually got to meet our Q&A guests because we shared a class together, which was really nice and somewhat relaxing and also taught both of us that we're not particularly good at meditation. Having said all of that, it's okay because we're not here to give you a meditation this evening, but Emily is here to take over our podcast for about, I don't know, say 10 minutes. It'll be an adventure. We'll find out. Emily Dina is a third-year rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, Ohio. She grew up in the Chicago suburbs and essentially lived at Beth Emmett Synagogue for much of her middle and high school years as a leader in youth group at Nifty Car. From college until today, she has worked with Jewish and secular disability advocacy organizations to push for more accessibility in the Jewish community and a general increased awareness of disability in all of the spaces that she operates within. Her aim is to become a hospital chaplain after rabbinical school. Emily, it's so exciting to be back in a Zoom space with you, and it's such a privilege to be able to pass you the mic. It's so awesome to be here. Hi, Carly. It's nice to meet you. I'm surprised that our paths have not crossed sooner than now. And while I have many questions to you, I was wondering if you could expand a little more about, I don't know if you talked about this at all, actually, like your experience both as disability rights activists in the Jewish space more and in Jewish communities and what barriers to access you may have faced or seen faced in Jewish communities. Absolutely. So similarly to what I described earlier about not having a lot of exposure or access really to other disabled community prior to kind of the explosion of online access during quarantine, my access to, you know, accessible Jewish community that I also felt connected to was very limited prior to that. And my kind of involvement with both have kind of come up together, which is like an interesting, you know, kind of braiding together of the experiences. And I think just as anybody, their identities, you know, can't be completely untwisted. For me, I think it's very hard to kind of untwist them. They're completely intertwined for me. And so a lot of my work has focused on um, making my own Jewish community, which is a progressive, radical community in Philadelphia, helping them to maintain accessibility that grew during the quarantine, at least grew for many of the members that expanded the community, but also, you know, made it more difficult for some people 
people have different needs and sometimes those needs can clash. And so it's challenging. This is granular on the ground or in the cloud people work. It's like every day or every week, you know, individual relationships, slow, the pace of access, the pace of disability justice is slow. And sometimes we have to be intentionally slow, you know, to allow for access for all of us. And, you know, it can be challenging, but it's also really rewarding and really special to have a community of particularly other Jewish disabled, many queer people, you know, to experience these things with. Because even when you feel sort of on multiple margins, it's better to be there with other people. (laughs) I can definitely agree with that. And I think that in a lot of ways it is hard for it to be so slow, but it is also important because we each have our own access needs. And I would also mention that even people without disabilities have access needs. They're just not always stated as explicitly access needs in a lot of the communities that maybe our listeners or anyone else interacts with. Switching gears a little bit for a second, as we go back to normal, I'm putting this in air quotes for those of you listening to this, and this is a kind of depressing question, but what are your fears for how we're going to move backwards? Because I know I have plenty. Yeah, it's definitely shared fears. And I think, yeah, maybe you picked up on a little bit (laughs) at the end of my last answer, sort of some of those fears kind of floating a little bit to the surface about, you know, it's better to be with other people if you're on the margins, (laughs) at least you have people there. Right now is an uneasy time for you know, disabled, chronically ill, immune compromised people whose access was increased during quarantine or, you know, I don't want to talk about the pandemic in past tense, whose access has been (laughs) increased. And there is a lot of fear of being left behind again. And I talked about a CDC briefing, you know, I sort of, I joked about that earlier you hear people saying, you know, well, it's only the disabled and elderly who are still getting sick and dying. And, you know, that's good news. To hear that we are essentially disposable in order to get the economy going, or, you know, just because people are tired of being careful and putting in the effort to take care of their communities, it all reverts back to the individual and now we're one-way masking and just hoping for the best. And that's, I think, where community choices about, you know, who we really want in our camps, like, does it matter to have disabled people in our camps? Do we care? And, you know, if we don't care, which, you know, sometimes that's the message that is sent, if we don't care, then okay, we don't have to do these things. But if as a community, we decide, yes, like we want these people in our camp, they make contributions, our community is more whole with these people in our camp, then we're going to do these things as a community, we're going to do preventative things, we're going to take care of our people, we're all going to do it, we're all going to help take care of people when they get sick, 
you know, those are choices that we need to make. And I think our choices reflect our values. Yeah, I would also add that that connects back to our Torah portion as well this week of are we isolating the sick or are we allowing the sick into our communities? And we really, as some of us who are going to be Jewish community professionals and those of us who are participants in Jewish communities, have to think about what those choices are making. And I know what some of my Jewish organizations have decided, and I also feel very complicated about that. And it's very hard to be the one in the room to ask everybody to put their masks on. That's an incredibly isolating experience. It feels like you're being kicked out of the room, even if you're not physically being kicked out of the camp like we are in our Torah portion. On a slightly happier note, it's less depressing. What are some of your hopes for where the disability justice movement will go in the future and in these years as it's beginning to grow, hopefully? Well, I think that, I mean, I kind of alluded to earlier that what's important to me is that these principles really get integrated in our communities. And so there's a lot of education that needs to be done, but it's also really depends on the relationships between people in our communities and creating true accessibility in communities that really focuses on it as an ongoing process, a continually happening thing that is part of the relationships in the community. What we do to expand our camps and include more people will look different for every community. And it's going to look different in a singular community as we go forward, because everyone has different needs and people's needs change. Will it mean, you know, choosing physically accessible spaces? Will it mean having more online options for people to participate? Will it mean, you know, having captions and ASL interpreters? It means all of that. But more fundamentally, it means coming at these things with an attitude of we're all working at this together because this benefits our whole community. Things that allow us to gather together, learn together, play together, work together, whatever it is that we heal together, protect ourselves together, that makes us a stronger community. And so we're gonna put in the effort to make sure that we're as accessible and inclusive as we can be, because it helps all of us. Awesome, I think that's a wonderful sentiment to end this part on. And now we're gonna pass it back over to Gabe for a cocktail. Hey, Hey, Amanda. I have been living with you for a long time. Would you agree? Yeah, it's been a few years. And, you know, if you include me partially living at your apartment in Jerusalem, then four years. And I know that you have a weakness for, like, pretty strong puns. Would you agree on that, too? I love a good pun. Okay, so let me guess. This week's drink is, like... I don't know, like a dirty something, right? Like, because it has to do with, you know, sickness and illness. So, like, I'm sure that it has to do with some sort of, like, dirty, on the rocks, 
I don't know, gritty, like, something, right? Like, that's the joke. Should, did, did I spoil it for the people? I don't even know. Look, man, like, this is a ridiculous thing. I have been trying to guess at your pun the whole day. Gabe, just give the people what they want. What's the drink? What's happening? How can we make people feel better at a time where they, you know, might just be a little stir-crazy from we're in this pandemic, we're out of the pandemic, we're in the pandemic, we're out of the pandemic. What type of mixture for Midrashic mixology have you mixed up for us today? Well, Amanda, we do talk a lot about impurity in this tour portion, but we also talk a lot about purity and what it means to be pure. So for this week's installment of Midrashic mixology, I'm proud to present the purity knee. That's puritini, like martini. Get it? So start off with about five slices of cucumber and just a handful of mint leaves for that fresh, clean, minty feeling, and put that together with one ounce of lime juice and just a dash of sweet vermouth for a little hint of sweetness. Muddle all of that together and add three ounces of vodka, because among other things, vodka is a great disinfectant. Probably. I'm not a doctor. Anyway, if you want a non-alcoholic version, swap out the vermouth for a half ounce of simple syrup and the vodka for three ounces of tonic water, which was developed as medicine. It contains quinine, which is an actual treatment for malaria. Again, not a doctor, but I definitely read that somewhere. Anyway, stir with ice and strain into a martini glass. Float a cucumber slice on top and enjoy. Lechaim. Sounds delicious. I mean, if you like drinking disinfectant, that is. I really appreciate the pun. Thank you. I hope that it doesn't actually taste like disinfectant. It is, you know, a martini on some level. But yeah, I kind of felt the need to point out the disinfectant properties. And, you know, sometimes we need that in our lives. Gabe, it's really hard to follow up from a pun like that, but I will try, you know, to see if I can clean up the mess just a little bit. We are at that time for thank yous and closing cues. And while we talked a little bit about, you know, calling things out and disclosed disabilities and really like making sure that people know that disability isn't a dirty word or a bad word. And making sure that people know that, right, like, it's okay to be who you are. And actually, sometimes it's really incredible to be who you are. Isn't that wonderful when we can say that and we can celebrate ourselves? But there is something I noticed in Tazria that we haven't quite touched on just yet. And in Tazria, we learn about Sararat, right? Like, this affliction that can be seen. But really not all, and I think for a lot of us, most of our afflictions aren't visible. So if people are hoping to get involved in disability justice, what's one thing that people might want to be more aware of? Carly, we'll start with you. That's a great question, and I think you raise an awesome point that you cannot just tell from looking at somebody whether they are disabled or not. There are tons of disabilities, whether they are mental health related, whether they are, you know, developmentally related, or, you know, whether they are chronic illnesses, which are sometimes referred to as 
invisible disabilities. You cannot just look at somebody and know whether they're disabled. You also cannot just look at somebody and know what their access needs are. And so I know I alluded to this before, but this work is really about relationships. And so if you are interested in doing the real kind of, like I said, granular work of disability justice, it is done in communities with other people, in relationship with other people, and it's a constantly kind of moving and evolving thing. You have to learn from other people what their access needs are. Sometimes you learn with other people what your own access needs are. And this goes for people who are disabled as well as people who aren't disabled. Folks who are disabled do not just automatically understand all this stuff or understand other people with disabilities and what their access needs are automatically. There's no magic here. We all have to talk to each other, find ways to communicate with one another, and really just do that work of meeting each other where we are because we think it's worth it for our community to be whole. Emily, I know that you have something most likely equally as powerful to add. Well, I second everything that Carly said, first of all. I also think I'm often on the communal leadership side of things, so I can speak a little more from that angle. And I think that two different things that I, I'm kind of cheating the question and saying two things. One, I think creating as accessible of a space or as open as a space of belonging as you possibly can create is a really important skill, but it doesn't generally come naturally, even to those of us with disabilities. It requires education. It requires looking for the resources in order to create those spaces. And you can't know what other access needs that might conflict or that are just something you haven't thought about might come up and you have to be willing to work with those when they come up and not single out the person who needs the access need in front of a large amount of people. It's really important that people with disabilities can out themselves if they want to, but they really shouldn't have to talk about their disability if they would rather not. Right. It sounds like, you know, people need to be up for that type of conversation if they want to be up for the conversation or if they invite you into that conversation. And there very well may be people who want to continue the conversation with you. And so if people want to continue the conversation, Carly, how could they find or follow you? Yeah, I would love to continue this conversation. I don't know if you can tell from listening to this that I absolutely love this topic and will geek out over it for hours with anybody who lets me. Um, so if anyone wants to find me, you can find me on Instagram at Carly G Esquire. <laughs> it's at K-A-R-L-Y-G ESQ, where currently you'll mostly find reposts from a lot of incredible people and pictures of my cat. Important, important. And Emily, I know you also have a cat, but if people want to have a conversation with you and I don't know, possibly the cat, how can they find or follow you? So 
I made this relatively easy. My website is Emily S as in Sarah Dana.com. So just my name with an S in the middle of it. And my email is Emily S Dana at gmail.com. You certainly did make that easy. And, you know, one more easy thing that we can knock out is just saying thank you. So thank you so much, Carly and Emily, for bringing us into such an important conversation. Thank you to Gabe for creating a ridiculous cocktail and for taking the lead on this particular interview. Thank you, Idan, for making sure that we still ran on time and ensured that all of our sound quality, like, you know, made it up to your level of excellence. And thank you to Kate for just truly making us sound smarter than we tend to be. Us, me and Gabe, not our guests. Our guests are brilliant. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Stay tuned for our conclusion coming at you soon. Amanda, I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think there's some times that we as Jewish leaders, uh, particularly as clergy people or as educators, teach the text and, you know, preach the text. And there are some times that we really preach against the text, that we might even use the text as a foil, as something to say, this was wrong, and we still respect it as holy, as sacred, as something that, you know, is a part of our sacred tradition. And also, it's not right anymore. And I think that this is one of those instances where I'm thinking, this part of our tradition is really problematic. I mean, I think that it can be, and I think that sometimes it is, but I think also it's in how we interpret it and how we deal with it today. I mean, look, I'm not sure I would have ever thought about looking at this through a disability justice lens. When we were originally talking about it, we were talking about the possibility of maybe speaking to someone who specialized in infectious diseases, right? This idea of something that spread so fast that it could be anywhere. But I'm really glad that we were able to not spin it because that makes it seem like we're not like really handling the portion as it is but to be able to handle it in a really different way and to be able to take ownership of something that, yeah, is troubling. Totally. I think that what was so great about this conversation was that it never felt to me that either Carly or Emily were simply brushing off the text. They weren't saying, this is wrong and we should abandon it. They were saying there are some problems here and we should talk about what those are. We should name them. And there's still a lot we can learn. There's still a lot we can learn from this text and from our tradition about how to pursue justice for the disabled population. And really, that's what we hope to do every week on this podcast, is to take our tradition, to bring a new lens, to shed new light on both the Torah through the world around us and the world around us through Torah. So... If you enjoyed that, if we achieved that goal today, please make sure to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It super helps us. And as always, check us out on Facebook, on Instagram, or at drinkingandroshing.com. And of course, our store, store store.drinkingandroshing.com. All right. L'chaim. L'chaim. Hi, I'm Emily Dana, and you're listening to Drinking and Drawshing Torah with a Twist. 
And I'm excited to try Gabe's cocktail, even if I don't usually like martinis.